I brought my Bible to church today. This one, I looked in the cover, it said, it was given to me in Christmas 1967. It was my final year of high school and I was on my way to Bible college in America and I said to my dad, I need a decent Bible. And quite recently had been published the latest edition of the Thompson's Chain Reference Bible. And I've treasured it ever since. It's falling apart, but the wonders of superglue will keep it together. I hope you've got your Bible with you. You'll, hopefully you'll click as we go along as to why I think it's important to bring your own Bible with you to church. That wasn't important. I believe more than at any time in history, we need to start taking the Bible really, really seriously. And I say this because never before in history has it been so ridiculed and so castigated in the secular world. And even within the church, there are those who have a very deficient, and in fact, an even scandalous view of what the Bible is. We at Staines Congregational Church form part of that tradition known as evangelical and reformed. Evangelical means we preach the gospel of Christ. We preach that Christ is our Savior. We we preach that there's no other way to salvation. And we know that because the Bible tells us that. We reformed because in in the following in the footsteps of the great reformers who exactly 500 years ago this year talked about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and the scriptures alone as being the authority upon which the church builds its doctrine and its life. And we need to realize today that even in many mainstream churches, Protestant churches, this is no longer believed. I read something the other day from a church uh, publication in a well-known denomination that says, Christ is a way to God, but he is not the only way. And the Bible contains some really comforting teachings and moral truths, but it is in no way the final authority for Christians and the church. It's in a church newsletter. Here this morning in this congregational church, we have written into our statement of faith. If it doesn't want to work, Ian, I'm pushing the button, but it doesn't want to work. Ernie, you remember the days we could just stand up and pick our Bibles and just preach? (laughs) Now you've got to get wired up and you've got to have things that will get it working eventually. We have a statement of faith which is going to come up in just a second. There we go. I knew Ian could do it. All right? There it is behind you. Let's just have a look at this very carefully. God has revealed himself in the Bible, which consists of the Old and New Testaments alone. Every word was inspired by God through human authors, so that the Bible, as originally given in its entirety, is the Word of God. Without error and fully reliable, in fact and in doctrine. The Bible alone speaks with final authority and it is always sufficient for all matters of belief and practice. That is what we believe in the Congregational Church. And I tell you something, you could go read that statement out in certain pulpits, in certain churches, and they drag you unceremoniously out of that pulpit because they would tell you that is not what we believe in anymore. You're not in touch with contemporary Christianity. Anyone here have a problem with the term contemporary Christianity? I'm not quite sure what it is. 
Give me the old-time religion. That's what we used to sing. I like that. And so in this five-sermon seri- five series, which I'm privileged to be able to share with you, we're going to look at what this Bible is, what it means. Today and, the f- and, and next Sunday, we're going to look at, is the Bible really God's Word? Is it really a word from the God of creation? And in the other sermons, we're going to be looking at things like, how accurate is the Bible, really? And can we trust it, word for word? What's the role of the Bible in our day-to-day living? How should we be interpreting it? And why do people interpret it differently? And how do we determine what God is saying to us in this day and age? So is the Bible really then the word of God? Well, I guess you have to start with the word Bible itself, don't you? The word Bible in itself is just, it's just a word, really. It, it originally meant that part of the papyrus plant, the inner bark of the papyrus plant, which was used and spread out, and it was used as, and most people used it to write on. The earliest forms of writing were done on this papyrus bark, and that was called, that was called Biblos originally. But it came to mean over time, it came to mean a book or any book, or even a library of books. So there's nothing particularly spiritual or religious about the word itself, Bible. In fact, in many careers, in many professions, people will say, here's our Bible, and that means this is the way we do things around here, a manual of how we operate. But what do we mean then by the term, the Word of God? Well, the Word of God is used in several different ways. First of all, the Word of God is a term that we sometimes use to to talk of Jesus Christ himself. Just make sure the right one's up there. Yep, it is. In the book of Revelation, right towards the end of the book of Revelation, John has this wonderful vision of Christ in heaven, just before the the final battle of Armageddon. And he says, there he is, dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Christ has very clearly given that title at the very end of the scriptures, the Word of God. But we know that before that, on many occasions, probably most commonly, is is from John's Gospel, where John starts his Gospel, not as some of the other Gospels start, with a, a story of his birth or anything like that, but he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. And a little bit later on in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word of God is sometimes the title we use for Jesus Christ himself. He is the incarnate Word of God. But it's also a term that is used when God speaks to people. So, for example, we see God giving all sorts of decrees and and commandments. Very often those decrees bring things into being. So right in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, we read this. God said, let there be light and there was light. God speaks, something happens. And that goes, out, goes on throughout creation. Psalm 33 e- echoes that. By the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, were the heavens made, and the starry host by the breath of his mouth. But God's word is also about the personal messages that are given to specific people at specific times. Right back in the very beginning when he speaks to Adam in a language that Adam must have understood, Adam must have been created with an ability to understand a particular language, God speaks directly to Adam. You remember that. And one of the things he says, the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
God speaking directly to Adam. And we know what they did with that instruction. And again, we see God speaking directly to Moses, for example, on many, many, many occasions. Most memorably when he he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And one of the questions which we might have to look at in the course of the coming month is God still speaking audibly to individual people today? Or has that stopped? Has everything God wanted to say already been said? Is Is it already all here? Or does God still speak audibly, out loud, to specific people? It's a question we'll need to look at. We see God speaking through the mouths, through the lips of others. God spoke to Israel and to his church on many, many occasions through designated leaders, prophets, poets, historians, apostles. Use their voices, their idiosyncratic ways of speaking, their, their, their dialects, their accents, And God spoke through these people. We see Moses being a a mouthpiece for the nation of Israel, giving inspired instructions to the priests and to other leaders of Israel. And there's an interesting verse tucked away in the the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 1, where we, we find this. Then the Lord reached out his hand, Jeremiah says, and he touched my mouth. And he said, see, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overturn, to build and to plant. So God uses the mouths and the writing skills of people to begin to speak. We'll come to the writing in just a moment. God speaks through people. One of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, a doctrine that we we no longer accept, or we certainly, the Protestant church has never accepted, is that God is still speaking through the mouth of the Pope when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, or from his throne, from his church. The God that the Pope may add to the Bible by saying something new and something different, and that carries as much authority as the Scripture has. We say no. God no longer speaks like that in that sense. But what about preachers today? What about people like myself and Nick and Ernie and John and others who preach from this pulpit? Does God speak through us? I believe we're, as preachers, only ever on safe ground when we stick very close to what God has already said and not proclaiming all our own opinions. Yes, God does and can and speak through preachers in pulpits, but it's not in the same inspired way in which he spoke through the apostles and through the leaders in the, in, the, in, the, in the scriptural record, but more of that later. But finally, of course, where we get to today is that God, we talk about the word of God as this written book, this thing we have called the Bible, and that's our main concern. And there are a large number of instances in the Bible where we find people writing things down. I guess you have to begin, in a sense, with the Ten Commandments, where God himself uses the act of writing with his own finger. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant of the law, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And we have those still today. Not the stone, but the inscription. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24. When Moses finished writing... 
In a book, those words of the law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord, and he said, take this book of the law. So everything Moses had written, he says, take it and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. And in the New Testament, we see Christ promising the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Why is he promising the Holy Spirit? Because he wants them to remember everything he's been telling them. Why does he want them to remember? Because he's going to rely on them to write it down. And the Holy Spirit has this wonderful ministry to to Peter and to James and to John and to Matthew and to others who are able to remember all of this stuff in a special way so they're able to put it down in writing. So in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, verse 37, Paul says this, If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. You hear the authority. What I am writing to you, says Paul, is not mine, it's the Lord's authority. What a privilege it has! it is to have this, you know. What a What a pile of benefits we have from this. We have a much more accurate preservation of God's word. Can you imagine if it all just been oral tradition? Passed on through one voice to the next generation, through voice to the next generation. You know how badly a game of Chinese whispers goes goes horribly wrong in a party. Can you imagine what we'd have today if it was all just oral representation, oral passing down? We can rely on a, on a written record. This is so precious. And we have the opportunity now, because it's written down, to inspect it and to study it anytime we want. And every time we want, it's there for us. I'm, I'm thrilled that we belong to a church where this Bible is central, where people are encouraged to have their own copy of the Bible and to use it again and again and again and write in it and make notes in this part of this Bible I can't even read anymore because I've written so many notes over the top of it. That's what it's for. And God's word is now available to multitudes of people all over the world. It's written down. It's recorded. We have God's word. So what, what constitutes this Bible then? Well, as you know, there are 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New There are Bibles that have more books than that. The Catholic Bible has a number of other books, which we'll talk about in just a moment. We refer to the books that we have, the 66, as the canon of Scripture. C-A-N-O-N, the canon of Scripture. And it's really important we know a little bit about how we got these, a little bit about how we came to have these particular uh, books in our Bible. It's critical. It's critical that we know that what we have in these 66 books are the, are the words that God wanted us to have. Nothing's left out, nothing to be added. If you look at a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is written about the words of the law that Moses has been given to them, has been giving to them. And he says, this is no trifle for you, it is your life. And thereby you shall live long in the land which you are going over Jordan to possess. These are important words. This is not a trifle. This is important to you. It is your life. So in some way, we, if we don't get the real and actual words from God, and if we start adding to them and subtracting from them, 
then we're causing ourselves some very serious problems because we no longer know what the words of God are. And even earlier in Deuteronomy, we find these words. Once again, Moses speaking. He says, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of your Lord. I'm thrilled today. The Holy Spirit has convinced me in my heart, as he has convinced most of you, or many of you, or all of you, that what we have here is God's words to us. All of it. It's all here. It's all here. From around about 1500 BC to around about the end of the first century AD, writers wrote under the inspiration of God, and here we have it. And if we look at the Old Testament canon to start with, well, when did, this, when did this all start? How did this Old Testament, these 39 books, some of them stories, some of them poems, some of them histories, when did it all, how did it all begin? Well, in a sense, it all begins, if you like, with the Ten Commandments. That, those words written not by human hand, but by God's actual hand. That's where it starts. But it goes further than that we begin to see how the nation of Israel begin to collect all of these words. So let's go a little step further. We see these tablets are first kept in the, in, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, in, the, in, the, in the, 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 that Ark that was kept originally in the tabernacle and then moved to the temple when the temple was built. And they constitute the covenant between God and his people at that time. But this collection began to grow and to grow and to grow as different people added writings to it. So, for example, the, the section we've already mentioned from, from Deuteronomy, where we see Lord Moses writing things down, writing things down and then including them. Now, this refers particularly to the book of Deuteronomy, but we know it's much more than that. We know that Moses, according to the latest scholarship, and I accept that scholarship 100%, Moses wrote all, fi all five of the first books that we have, from Genesis right through to the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and so on. And one by one, as these re re writings were accomplished, they were taken and they were put together with the original Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. So when you get to the end of Moses' time, you see Joshua taking over. So you find, you find Joshua, for example... Oh, no, that, I'm just going to leave. I'm gonna get, let me go on to the next one. Sorry. Yeah, so we have Joshua recording these things. Joshua begins to take over the writing from Moses. And not only does Joshua write, but there's a lot more. We see, once again, we see... Oh, sorry. This is why I don't use these things normally. Um, we see, going, back, going further forwards now into the time of Samuel the prophet... Samuel explained to the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them down on a scroll, and where were they? They were deposited before the Lord. Where can that be? In the Ark of the Covenant, kept in the tabernacle. The whole life of David, from in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 onwards, we read, and for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel, the records of Nathan, the records of, God, of Gad the seer and together with all the details of his reign and power. And once again, they're written and they're collected. And where are they put? they put together with all the scriptures. So they collected and they put together. Isaiah writes about the life and times of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles. Amos writes about the life and times of King Hezekiah. And Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And this was to him. He says, Jeremiah, write in a book 
all the words I have given you. So the writing goes on and on and on throughout those years from about 1500 BC through to around about 430 BC. Writings are added. And these writings become part of this body of literature that the the people of Israel take as God's words to them. And they're kept together. And then in around about 430 BC, it stops. The writing stops. The last book seemed to have been written, seemed to have been the book of Ezra, possibly. Ezra, who we know, traveled to Jerusalem in 458 BC. Nehemiah was possibly one of the very last of the books. We know Nehemiah was in Jerusalem from 445 to 433 BC. And Esther was written during the reign of King Artaxerxes, who ruled from 460 to 423 BC. And there were no more accepted Jewish writings after that period. By the time we get to that time, around about 440 BC, there is no more acceptable writing. There are people still writing, but none of it is accepted the way the writing up until now has been accepted. One of the greatest Jewish historians of all time was a man by the name of Josephus. He was born around about the time of the beginning of the church, very close to the time when the church began. And he wrote, from Artaxerxes to our time, this is this period of silence that we're talking about, from about 434, 40, to the beginning of the church, that period of silence, from Artaxerxes to our own time, a complete history has been written. But it has not been deemed worthy of equal credit to our other records. So all of those other books that were written were not included in the Old Testament canon. Many of those books form something that is known as the Apocrypha. Have you heard of the Apocrypha? This is a group of Old Testament writings, most of them written in that 400 years period of science, but one or two shortly before that. And these, these books, most of them appear today still in the Catholic Bible, but they do not appear in our Protestant Bible. And from the very earliest times, people have accepted that these are the books these 66, and they have rejected the Apocrypha. You'll, you'll come across books like First and Second Esdras, Tobit, the Song of the Three Holy Children, First and Second Maccabees, the Book of Enoch, a number of these books. Some of them have va- some, some validity and some worth, and some of them are good things to read, but they do not find themselves. They are never accepted by the Jewish people as part of their scriptures, even today. And if you go back into the history of the church, you go back all the way to 70 AD, when many of the apostles were still alive. Mileto, the bishop of Sardis, puts together the first Christian version of the Old Testament. And guess which books are in it? The 39 that we have. None of the apocryphal books. And so it goes through the church fathers, from Eusebius to Athanasius and onwards. The church only accepts the 39 books that we have. It was only in 1546 that the Roman Catholic Church finally suggested that the Apocrypha be part of Scripture. Only in 1546. In direct opposition to what Luther and the other reformists were saying. But we reject the Apocryphal books for a number of reasons. First of all, they never claim, they never claim to be authoritative. They never claim to be the words of God. They were never regarded as scripture by the Jewish people themselves. 
They were not considered to be scripture by Jesus himself. Jesus quotes, do you know, from nearly every one of the Old Testament books. Do you know that? He quotes from so many of the Old Testament books. Not every one, but most of them. But he never quotes from the Apocrypha. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, quote from the, the 39 books of our Old Testament again and again and again and again, but they don't quote ever from the Apocrypha. There's one little instance where possibly James and possibly Peter make a, a kind of reference possibly to some of the writings of Enoch, but we're not even quite sure of that. But they are never formally quoted. And what's particularly concerning is they do contain a number of teachings which are very, very inconsistent with the rest of the Old Testament. So on those grounds, we today do not accept those apocryphal books into our Bible, and they're not there. They're not there. We don't believe that they are God's word to us. But what about the New Testament briefly? The New Testament canon, in a sense, is a little bit easier. Largely because there isn't this large number of books that exist that people are fighting about, saying, should it be in, shouldn't be in. Our 27 books, the 27 books that we have, have largely been accepted all along, universally, unanimously, from the very earliest times. These are the 27 books of the New Testament. There are one or two other books you've come across, possibly things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Shepherd of Hermes, and others that, have, that do exist. People read them, but they have not found their way into our scriptures. We do not believe they are part of our scriptures. Now, the New Testament, we believe, chronologically, if you like, the very first books that were written in our New Testament were not the Gospels. They came a little while later. Probably we're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians, which our pastor has taken us through quite recently, or possibly Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. They were possibly the very first books. So Paul writes these letters, and immediately the letters begin to be copied and to be circulated. And eventually what begins to happen is that these books become to, be, become to be recognized as apostolic, as true as God's word, because of the way Paul writes in an authoritative way. And so words begin to get added. So after the pause of some 400 years from the time of the, the last writings of Ezra, of Esther, of Nehemiah, right through we've got this period of silence, now the writing starts again in around about A.D. 40, A.D. 45. And from that period, for another 40 years or so, the writing continues, and then it stops again. Jesus says to his disciples, a verse that I've mentioned to you already, the Holy Spirit, he says to the people who are with him, and I'm thinking particularly at this moment of, of Peter, I'm thinking of John, I'm thinking of Matthew, and he's saying to them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring back to your memory. He's going to give you and he's going to lead you into all of this truth. You're going to be, you're going to be spirit taught. And I think that's critical here. Sorry, that's the wrong one. <laughs> Sorry, I, um, that's the one I'm looking for. Sorry. The advocate, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, who my Father will send, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And so we, we, we get this period of writing from around about 40, 40 AD for the next 40, 45 years, apostles begin to write. And how do they begin to write? Well, because they, are, they have been given this very special unction by the Holy Spirit to remember what Christ has told them. 
Not so with Paul. Paul's slightly different because Paul wasn't there when Christ was there. My wife is doing a study of the book of um, Acts and she keeps telling me things that I didn't know. I didn't realize how long Paul actually was between his conversion and the time he started preaching. It was a long, long time that Christ took him away and lectured him, as it were, instructed him. So Paul, although he wasn't there when Christ was teaching physically, he got his instruction. So we know what Paul wrote is from God. And from the earliest times onwards, we discover that the early church begins to recognize these writings as just as powerful, just as necessary, just as authoritative as the Old Testament scriptures that they they have. And we see this picked up, for example, when Paul says, This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritualities with Spirit-taught words. See what Paul is saying? These words are not from me. These words are from God. These are spiritual realities taught to me by the Spirit. Peter actually echoes this when he says of Paul, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. And he writes in the same way in all of his letters. So there the great apostle Peter is echoing what Paul has been saying. These are special words. So then by the apostles and by the virtue of this apostolic office, they have the authority to write these precious words that we have here today. And immediately, as these words began to circulate and to be gathered and be copied, they were gathered together, and it wasn't long before the New Testament began to be formed. The vast majority of the New Testament is written by apostles. Paul, Peter, John, Matthew... I'm going to call James an apostle as well. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he was the brother, half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ and a a very prominent figure in the the Jerusalem church. He He gives us the book of James. But if that's the case, we're left with five books that are not written by apostles. Can you think of what they are? Gospel of Mark. Two books by Luke. Luke and the Acts. The book of Hebrews. And the book of Jude. Now, they're not written by apostles. How did they get into our New Testament? Well, Mark, we know, was a very close associate of Peter, the great Peter. It appears that in most of Peter's writing, maybe even in some of his, in some of his letters, he tends to use Mark as his scribe. Certainly the Gospel. It's the Gospel according to Mark, but in many ways it is the Gospel according to Peter. He seems to be Peter's scribe in many ways. Luke, well, we know that Luke... The doctor, the physician, was a very close associate of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with him on many occasions and a very, very close associate. And a closely associate of many of the other apostles. He learns from them the eyewitness accounts that he uses to write the gospel. Jude, Jude is a very close associate of James, the half-brother of Christ. And that leaves Hebrews. I believe Hebrews was originally included in our Bibles because people believed that it had been written by Paul. Today we question that. We're not sure whether it was Paul or not. Folk thought it was Paul simply because Paul being such an educated uh, rabbinic scholar in the book of Hebrews is written by somebody with great history and understanding of rabbinic traditions. 
but it appears it is not Paul, simply because of some of the language and a few other things. So today, it remains in the New Testament, the only book that we're not entirely sure of its authorship. But it finds its place in there because it is so fundamental to Christian doctrine. It doesn't contradict anything else that's said anywhere else, and it gives us a huge amount of instruction as to how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, how the covenants fit together, how for Jewish Christians Christianity can become real. So we have no doubt today that the Hebrews is one of those books that we ought to be giving attention to. So finally, just another passage of Scripture. See, I'm going one step too far every time. There we go. You'll recognize this passage. It's from the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible. John has been receiving revelation after revelation. Some of them frightening, some of them encouraging, some of them just sheer staggering. And now he, he gets some final words. And these words come to him God says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this scroll. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of the scroll, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. That's a very, very firm warning indeed. Now, folk will say, well, that only applies to the book of Revelation, surely. Well, I'm not so sure. I think Revelation, very clearly, is the last book of the Bible, and I believe Revelation was meant to be the last book of the Bible. It's certainly the last book to have been written. And these are some of the last words we have in the very last book of the Bible, and I believe they apply to all of Scripture. And the warning is very clear, that once we know what we have as our Bible, we are not to take words out of it, and we are not to add any words to it. And the warning against doing such things is extremely firm indeed. So in summing up, I, over and above what I've said, I, I believe strongly in my own heart that it's our reliance on God's faithfulness and God's goodness to us that we ultimately come to accept that this is God's word. I don't believe any academic argument can convince anybody that this is God's word. I believe God is good to us and in his faithfulness and in his desire to have us know what he wants to say to us. Through the Holy Spirit, he convinces our hearts that this is God's word. And that has always been my starting point. I've been studying this word for well over 50 years myself, from my teenage years through till now, and I've had my questions. Boy, have I had my questions. I've had my doubts. I've had a few of those as well. I still have questions. But over the years, God has been faithful. And he said to me, Rob, this is my word. Start there. Start there. Then bring your questions. Start with my faithfulness. He loves us. He wants us to know. And so we focus on the process by which we become persuaded that this is indeed God's word. This is how it works. You see, the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit convinces us of the truth and the authority of this book. It's his word. It's his work to do that, to convince us as to what is here comes from God, these 66 books. And throughout 
2,000 years of, of church history, Christians have testified again and again and again how these words from this book are like no other words. Day after day, year after year, Christians all over the world are finding that the Bible is indeed God's word, speaking to us with authority, power, and persuasiveness. The writer to Hebrews calls it a two-edged sword full of power and authority. And that has been my experience. So I conclude then with a very brief statement from our word of faith. Every word was inspired by God. Every word inspired by God through human authors. And something I'm going to pick up on a later occasion, as originally written. Does that mean to say that this particular version of the Bible, and this one is the King James Version, written way back in the the 1600s, is this the Word of God? Well, yes, we believe it is. But in a real sense, in a true sense, the original inspiration was as it was originally written in the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. We're going to talk a little bit later about how accurate, how true we feel our current uh, versions of the Bible are to that. I believe we can rest absolutely assured, absolutely, as I hope to share with you over coming weeks, that just as God inspired the original writers, and that was the original, that was the word of God, so today we can have ultimate trust in in the words that we have in front of us today. And I'd like to leave with you a quotation from Sir Frederick Kenyon, a previous director of the British Museum, principal librarian of the British Museum. Listen to these words. In no other case is the interval between the time of composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscript so short. What's he saying here? In no other book anywhere in the world, ancient book, is the distance in time between when it was written and the earliest copy we have of it. No other book in the world has such a short time span between the writing and the earliest copy that the Bible has. And the last foundation for any doubt has been removed that the scriptures have come down to us as they were originally written. This is written by a man who was not a Christian. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the New Testament, he's speaking specifically of the New Testament, may be regarded as finally established. We don't need Sir Frederick Kenyon to tell us that, but isn't it good that even atheist men, scholars, are telling us that this is the most reliable historical book that exists? Let me share with you very briefly a chart. Can you see that? If you look very briefly, you'll see, for example, that look at Caesar, Caesar's Gallic Wars. Now, I studied Latin at school for my sins, and I'm sure it was for my sins. I'm convinced I did something to have seven years of Latin. And one of our textbooks was Caesar's Gallic Wars. We had to translate it from the Latin into the English. Now, that was written somewhere during the life of Caesar, and Caesar died in 44 B.C., The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. So there's a gap of a thousand years between when Caesar wrote it and when we have our very first copy of it. Have you ever heard anybody casting aspersions on the accuracy of Caesar's Gallic Wars? No. What about writing of Homer, Herodotus, Plato? 
We've got a few copies, a few copies. But when you come to the scriptures, you're looking at something entirely different. Most of the books of the New Testament, I'm talking particularly about the New Testament here, we can do this for the Old Testament as well. Most of the books were written between 50 and 100 AD. The earliest copies that we have are only 50 years after that. And the very latest copies, the whole of the New Testament in one place, is a mere 225 years. In historical terms, that is nothing. And in total, we have 5,366 ancient manuscripts at last count. We're finding them more and more with archaeological digs as we go along. You should not be bending over backwards to the critics and the cynics in your university classrooms, your high school classrooms, your places of work, saying you can't trust this is a book of myths and legends. If they're going to say that about the Bible, they've got to say that about every historical book that's ever been written. And they won't do that. Nelson Gluck, most famous of all biblical archaeologists, says it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single Bible reference. We'll talk about that a little bit further as well. And finally, you've got some work to do. The end of each sermon in this series, I'm going to give you a verse to memorize. And we're going to check next week to see whether you've memorized it. Now, I know you can always kind of mumble and I won't hear a word. But this is the first verse. Why do we memorize scripture? For one simple reason, the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And here's your verse. Can you see it? 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Look it up, read it a thousand times, remember it, and bring it with you, with your Bible, next time. God bless you.